Box spreads and arbitrage strategies are often synonymous with one another and referenced interchangeably in the options trading community. And after all, who doesn't want a risk-free way to earn money, right? But like all things that seem too good to be true, box spreads carry some serious risks if you're not careful in how you set them up. So today's show then focuses exclusively on box spread basics for options traders. You're listening to the Option Alpha Podcast from OptionAlpha.com, where we show you how to make smarter trades, learn how the stock market really works, and generate consistent monthly income. Now, your host and head trader at OptionAlpha.com, Kirk Duplessis. Hey everyone, this is Kirk here again from OptionAlpha.com, working every single week to make this the most popular investing podcast offered online because it's based on one thing and one thing only, and that's helping you consistently place smarter, more profitable trades. So again, thank you so much for tuning in today. On today's show, number 178, we're going to be talking all things box spread basics for options traders. Now, this admittedly is not a topic that we've really ever covered on the podcast. So this is new territory. There's a brand new subject matter. And if you're new to trading or if you've been trading for a little bit, you probably have heard of box spreads, you've heard of arbitrage strategies. And so what I want to do is try to demystify a lot of this stuff today for you, try to break it down as always into very simple steps or thought processes that you can use moving forward to help you understand what they are and what the risks and you know payoffs are associated with box spreads. And then at the end of this episode, we're going to be going through the case study, which I think is pretty much public legend at this point with one irony man, or however you want to say it, irony man, who was the Reddit user that ultimately brought down box spreads on Robinhood because Robinhood didn't understand the risks that were associated with it, or at least didn't know how to manage the position. And he was basically able to parlay this into a very, very risky strategy with just a small amount of money. So we'll talk about that at the end. And I think it's a great synopsis of what we're going to get into here. So let's dive right into it and talk about box spreads. Effectively, box spreads are what they sound like. And I, I don't mean to be too cliche, but the reason that they're called box spreads is because in the option pricing table itself, what you basically end up doing with a box spread is you buy and sell all of the contracts in a box. And so if you're looking at an options pricing table, especially on a desktop, if you're looking on mobile, it might not work as well. But usually when you're looking at it on desktop, you're looking at putting together all of these different contracts. And it's funny thing about options trading is that Many times we have all these exotic names like Iron Butterfly and Iron Condor, and then sometimes we have names like Diagonal and Calendar, and it makes a little bit more logical sense because with a calendar, you're going across two different contract months, and with a diagonal, not only are you going across two different contract months, but you're also using two different strike prices. And so a box spread to me is very simple and easy to remember because you're actually creating a box of contracts around the market using four contracts on both sides of the options pricing table. And it's just a, a function of how you create and how you build this. So I want to go through an example here on the podcast because I think that this would really be helpful for everyone. So right now, the S&P is trading at about 281 or so as of this time, the recording that we're doing right now. And you can effectively create a box spread in the S&P by combining two strategies. So a box spread is just two simple strategies smashed together, and it creates a box if you use the same strikes on either side. So the first strategy that you're going to do is you're going to do a bull call spread. So this would be a bullish call spread. It's a debit spread where you're buying a spread on the call side of the pricing table. So in our case with XSP or SPY, whichever one you want to choose, trading at around 281 or so, we would buy, for example, the 275 and sell the 285. And so that would give us a $10 wide bull call spread on 
call spread side, and that cost of that particular spread is $6.28. Now, what we're also going to do is we're going to go over to the other side, to the put side, and we're going to buy a bearish put spread. So we're going to buy a bear put spread, or however you want to call it, debit spread on the put side. And we're going to use the same strikes just in the opposite buy and sell order. So this is what creates that kind of like box spread structure where you buy the 285 on the put side. So originally on the other side, we sold the 285, but now we're going to buy the 285 put. So we buy the 285 put and we sell the 275 put. And this is what creates effectively our box spread. So you can see what we're doing is you're buying and selling a put and call on either strike. So at the 275 strike price, you buy a call and you sell a put. At the 285 strike price, you sell a call and buy a put. Effectively, you're smashing these two strategies together and you're creating this box around the payoff diagram, hopefully trying to do this for a premium that is less than the combined width of the spread. And this is where I think for many people it gets really interesting because you see all the time out there about box spreads and, and a lot of tutorials that it's an arbitrage strategy or a risk-free strategy. And it is to a certain degree if you understand the risks that are associated with it. But if you do trade it in a certain way, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, you can create a scenario in which you find yourself in a quote-unquote risk-free strategy or arbitrage strategy. Now, I want to take one break right here and just pause and just say a lot of these arbitrage risk-free strategies pretty much don't exist anymore. And if they do exist, the amount of premium that you can collect in doing these is incredibly small. And once you factor in potentially assignment risk or broker commissions, it's practically zero. So market makers and computers and systems now are very efficient, so efficient that almost none of this occurs anymore. And I would argue that box spreads are more like a lending and borrowing instrument than they are necessarily a risk-free strategy. And so I think that a lot of people get into looking for box spreads and have this idea that they're going to find all these risk-free premium and all these risk-free arbitrage strategies, but it really doesn't exist anymore. They serve a purpose for sure. And we'll talk about that. But I don't think that the premium that you can collect is worth allocating all of your account to, obviously. So even if you find something that has a premium that is worth less than the combined width on both sides, and you have an opportunity maybe to squeak out a little bit of a profit or risk-free return, it's not something to write home about. So that's the first thing. So in our example here, we're doing a $10 wide spread on either side. So we did the 275, 285 on the call side, the 285, 275 on the put side. So the spread width for this box spread is $10, which means that that's effectively going to be the value of the spread at expiration. And this is the key point to remember is that the spread's always going to go towards that final value at expiration because you have one side that's in the money, you have the other side that's out of the money on the calls. And then on the puts, it's the complete opposite. One side's always in the money, the other side's always out of the money. So it's always going to end the expiration cycle at the full value of the width. So if you do a box spread that's $20 wide, it's going to end $20 wide. If you do it $100 wide, it's going to end $100 wide. And so the differential in trading them is only the premium that you pay or that you get in exchange for knowing 100% that it's going to settle at the value of the width of the spread. In this case right now, and I just built one out on SPY, the one that we just built out on SPY is trading for $9.99, $9.99. This means that if we were to execute this and there were no commission costs, no other assignment risk, no exchange fees, et cetera, 
we could execute this trade and get a guaranteed risk-free profit of $1. So think about that for a second. Remember what I said on this case with this box spread and SPY. This box spread is set up to be $10 wide on either side. So the value of this spread is going to go towards $10 at expiration. If we can buy it right now for $9.99, that means that we can generate a one cent risk-free arbitrage return. Now, again, this is assuming no broker commissions, no exchange fees, right? No having to deal with assignment risk if we potentially get assigned early or dividends or anything like that. It's just assuming that it goes right to expiration and we get a $1 risk-free return. Now, this is where I think people get, to me, they just get really confused because on one hand, yes, it totally is an arbitrage opportunity to some degree. On the other hand, why would we be doing this? Like why make a trade like this where we're risking effectively $1,000 in this case, that's how much the broker would hold in margin. They'd hold $1,000, which is the width of the spread to make sure that you can come up with this at expiration and you only get to make a dollar. It doesn't seem like it's it's a lot, right? Even if the spread traded down to, let's say, $9.97, you make $3, the broker still holds $1,000. So to me, it really doesn't make sense to do a lot of these, particularly because anything that you would do them on that would have the ability and no assignment risk, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, most of the spreads are going to be collapsed and market makers are going to arbitrage out that to zero. So there's going to be no real benefit or gain to doing this. But People do this all the time and, and it's a really big thing in options trading, but that's how it works. Now, this is an example of buying a box spread and this would be what most people actually try to do. Most people, when they trade box spreads, or at least most people I've seen trade box spreads, they try to buy box spreads. And this is what you'll see on forums and in community boards and in videos, you'll see people buying box spreads and you want to buy it again for a value that's less, hopefully significantly less than the width of the strikes like we just walked through. If you were to sell a box spread, you would have to collect a value that's less knowing full well that the value will increase, which is not good for sellers, to the width of the spread at expiration. So let's say for some reason, and we'll get into this here in a little bit, but just to kind of set the stage here, let's say instead of selling or buying this box spread, we decide to sell this box spread. And in this case, we would want to sell a box spread for potentially a higher value if it can get filled, which was highly unlikely, but if it could get filled, then you sell it for something over $10 so that it declines in value to $10. Or in many cases, what institutional traders and institutions will do is they might sell a box spread knowing that it's going to go up in value and they're going to potentially lose money in that case. So they might sell a box spread for $9.99 and collect all that premium knowing that at expiration, they're going to lose a dollar, right? They're going to have to pay back all that money and then some and then a dollar, right? All right, so at this point, I think I want to transition just a little bit though. And I think we actually do have to take one step back and start talking about the risk. I think it was important that we kind of set the stage and we talked about how to build one out initially, you know, buying one versus selling one. But now we need to take it one step further. And this is to me where you start to think about the next, the second and third level analysis of why people do what they do and how it all works in the back end. Because if you break down a box spread and you think about the risks that are associated with a box spread, the first risk that comes to mind is initially the pricing. So can you get a good price on the box spread? Now we've already said that if you're going to try to fill all of the legs of a box spread right away, which is ideally how you should do it, because that's the only real way to guarantee that it's going to be risk-free or arbitrage, is to fill all of the legs at the same time, 
then we've already said that that's probably going to be not possible because market makers and institutions, computers are going to collapse those spreads so that there's no easy money to be had. And if there is for a microsecond, somebody else might be faster at capturing those micro fractions of differentials. So it's almost impossible to fill these spreads nowadays. And I think the ones that you should be trading or the ones that you would even consider trading, I guess you could say, to fill these things with a really large premium differential between the price and what it's going to end up at at expiration. So now what people will naturally do is they'll say, well, if I can't fill all the legs at the same time, what if I leg into the box spread? What if I do the bull call spread right now and I wait for some market movement, maybe even just a couple pennies, a couple cents, and then I get into the bear put spread. And while that might seem like a really easy way to do it, because what could go wrong? We all know that a lot of things could go wrong. The spread could move the opposite direction, almost initially against your position. And you might never have an opportunity to get into a risk-free return. In fact, you might have to guarantee a losing trade and tie up capital for an entire month or a couple months. So the idea that we can just effectively leg into the position is also pretty much a non-factor. I don't think it's possible to do it effectively time and time again. I think that people can do it here and there. Maybe they might get lucky and they get one side filled at a good price, the other side filled at a good price and and capture a risk-free return that's bigger than they could have if they legged into all four contracts at the same time. But I think that those are far and few between. So now that we've conquered kind of the pricing differential, the next risk that I see is really in assignment. And this is what we'll talk about here at the end of the podcast too, with the really kind of like the legendary case study in this at this point. But the assignment risk is really, really high for doing some of these box spreads. And the problem with that is that even if you can get into a box spread and you can control the margin for that particular moment, if you have to sell multiple box spreads to make it worth your while doing, which is what a lot of people end up doing, they don't just do one box spread to collect a dollar, they'll do a hundred to collect a hundred dollars risk-free, right? But it's the assignment risk of all of those contracts that if your broker has to deal with an assignment, if you get randomly assigned a position, or even if your broker chooses to assign a position and remove some arbitrary risk in your account, how does that affect your position? If you have a $5,000 account and now you have to come up with 2,000 shares of Apple to hold this box spread, how does that affect your other positions? And more importantly, if you can't handle that margin and that assignment risk, which I doubt anybody could, that's really, really trading these on a larger scale, right? If you can't handle that assignment risk as a retail trader, then what it's going to force you to do is sell your position at a significant loss in order to get the contracts filled. We all know this to be true. We've seen this in the last couple of months where when there's no liquidity or when you need to have liquidity fast, you don't always get a good price. And in many cases, that small differential that you were going after now evaporates into thin air and goes negative because you have to liquidate your position due to assignment or due to having to hold shares long or short in your account. So that is the other major consideration that I just don't think a lot of people understand. And so to me, when I think about box spreads, I think, okay, there's probably no arbitrage opportunity, if any, in major markets, major indexes and ETFs, right? Probably none because they're so liquid. So the only place I would ever look, me personally, would be to look into lower liquidity ETFs and stocks. Maybe there's an arbitrage opportunity there because those lower liquidity stocks and ETFs have not as many eyeballs, 
The bid-ask spreads are a little bit wider. Maybe you can kind of finagle your way into a better position, but you still have massive assignment risk in those cases. And the assignment risk in something that's already low liquidity to begin with just compounds on itself when you actually need to get into or out of the position quickly. So that's why I don't think it works as well as people would assume, right? So the next natural progression then is, okay, well, if it doesn't work in things that have assignment risk, why don't we just sell box spreads in things that don't have any assignment risk? And I would say this would be the only way you would go. Something like SPX or XSP or RUT or NDX, something that is a cash settled European style index and option where the assignment can't happen. And even if the assignment could theoretically happen, everything is still cash settled at the end of expiration. To me, this would be the only place that you would even potentially consider treading water in this environment. But again, those are also going to be the most liquid, most traded, highest volume contracts, which means that most of the arbitrage opportunities are going to be very, very small if there's any opportunity there at all. But that would be the only place that you would do it. So if we continue down this thought process and this logic, the next logical progression then is, okay, why do it in the first place? Like what's the, what's the reason for doing it in the first place? And I think you have to go now to the next level, which is you're not a retail trader anymore because for the most part, I don't think retail traders can really take advantage of this on an ongoing basis. I'm sure somebody could prove me wrong and say, oh, I've done it a million times. Okay, great. Like I think the regular person doesn't take advantage of these on an ongoing basis. The next level up is the institutions and the market makers. And the way that it works there is that it's a means to borrow and lend effectively at near risk-free rates of return. And so if you think about what we had said earlier in this podcast, where you buy the box spread and then you know you're going to make a dollar at the end of expiration, or you sell something and you know it's going to cost you a dollar at the end of expiration, really all box spreads are is a very intricate way for institutions and people with much, much, much larger accounts to borrow and lend all effectively secured by the Options Clearing Corp, the OCC, because all the contracts are guaranteed to clear. There's no counterparty risk in here. Effectively, an interesting way and a complicated way to borrow and lend at the risk-free rate. And so what you find is that a lot of people who have money and they just have money sitting around, they might entertain a box spread as a means to just collect a little bit of premium on cash that they know they have sitting around. And they could use an SPX or an RUT or XSP as a means to facilitate that. So if you've got just you know an extra couple hundred thousand or a couple million dollars and you don't want to do something else, you don't want to entertain a bond fund or a short-term bond fund or something else that has low liquidity or bad float or just high pricing, you don't like the pricing, you don't like the downside risk, you could easily entertain a box spread. And you would do it maybe further out. Maybe you want to tie up some capital and you know just put a little bit of interest earning capability on this type of account for the next three months, right? So you go out three months and you buy a box spread. Right now, that would be effectively out into August at the time we're recording this. So you buy a box spread into August and you try to give yourself an opportunity to lend your money for a risk-free rate of return. So how would this look in our example? Now, by the way, the example that we built out in the initial beginning of this podcast was the front month contracts that were about 20-ish days to go until expiration. So if we go out to the August contracts, which are now over 90 days to go until expiration, and we built out the same box spread. So we did the 275 where we bought the 275 calls, sold the 285 calls, bought the 285 puts, and sold the 275 puts. 
we'd effectively give ourselves an opportunity to buy this box spread. Right now it's pricing at about 997. So not a huge difference, but you can see the extra time that we are going to tie up this capital in this box spread does give us marginally a little bit better premium than if we were to buy the box spread in the front month contracts and buy those for 9.99. These are 9.97, so we tie up $1000, we get $3 potentially of profit again before all of the costs of commissions and stuff like that, which again is still going to make it pretty much close to zero anyway, but it's proving the point that the longer you go out, you can then still potentially borrow or lend at these risk-free rates. So if I was going to buy the box spread, it would be like I am lending my money to the market participants and anybody who's going to take the opposite side of this combined all the contracts guaranteed by the OCC because I know there's going to be no counterparty risk. They're going to come in and backstop everything. And at the end of my 90 plus day period, I will have a box spread that's worth $10 at expiration. So I bought it for $9.97 and at expiration, it's worth $10. I gained a little bit of interest and it was effectively risk-free or, or pretty much risk-free for us, right? So that's an example of lending money. That's how maybe an institution might lend money through a bunch of these box spreads. If I was going to try to borrow money and say I'm an institution and I would try to borrow money, then I would just simply sell the box spread. I would sell a box spread out 90 days. It's like taking a loan from the market, right? And I collect a credit of 997, knowing that I'm going to have to pay back 997 plus the $3 to get me to the $10 spread width. Now, in a retail account like me and you, we can never do this, right? We can't do this. In fact, I double checked and I asked Thinkorswim and some other brokers. I'm like, look, if I sell this box spread and I collect $1,000, can I then I go use that money and then just you know pay it back later? And of course, the answer is no, you can't do that, right? They're not going to allow you to do that. They're going to force you to hold the position and hold the margin. It's just, and it's not going to work out. It's going to be a guaranteed loss trade. But on the institutional side, maybe some players can do that, right? And I'm sure some players can. They can go in there and they can sell and collect the premium, almost like an insurance company collects premiums and then they can reinvest those premiums and knowing that they have obligations, the same thing effectively happens. So if you need to borrow money, cover a position, you sell a box spread further out, knowing that's going to cost you to borrow at the risk-free rate or something near the risk-free rate, and then you can use that capital to do something else. As a retail trader, we can't really do that, right? That's not possible to do it. And so again, it makes it, to me, not efficient and not effective to sell these by any stretch because as a retail trader, it's not worth it. And then two, we just can't even use the money to do anything. But that's how it would generally work. So hopefully that kind of helps out in, in understanding. And I, I hope that that progression kind of helped out in understanding how these kind of work because you hear things on like wild ends of the spectrum when it comes to box spreads. But ultimately, it's still a very simple mechanical process. I mean, the idea of calculating out premiums relative to strike widths and spreads is something that we do all the time with regular positions, credit spreads and iron condors and iron butterflies. It's just now applied differently because you have all the contracts kind of looped around together in this box format on the pricing table. But again, as a retail trader, I just, I don't think there's a lot of opportunity here. And if there is, it's maybe an opportunity to buy a box spread in something that again is cash settled and European style, has no underlying associated to it and maybe slightly lent at the risk-free rate, even for just a small time period. But after all you factor in the commissions and everything, it might still end up being very, very small, like picking up like a couple pennies basically, instead of just keeping it in your account and saving all the hassle. All right. So let's wrap up this podcast and talk about what I think is 
definitely going to be one of the most interesting and one of the most widely heard about case studies with box spreads and all the things that actually can go wrong with box spreads. And that is the legendary at this point case study from one Irony Man, or if you just want to call it Irony Man, I think it's just actually Irony Man, but the first letter is one instead of an I. But the idea behind this was, is that a while back, this guy who's an anonymous person on Reddit basically posted all of his trades that he was doing with Robinhood creating this box spread. And the box spread started out to go really well. And he thought, I think at the time, and I don't know if this is true, if he thought that it was going to happen or not, or if it wasn't, he wasn't totally aware of the risks. I have no idea. We don't know. But he posted this trade where he was doing a very large, very aggressive box spread in UVXY. Now, UVXY is an ultra ETF for VIX short. So that was a very, very highly leveraged product to begin with. And then he was doing a box spread on top of this. So here was the setup of the box spread that he did. He bought 500 contracts. That's right. 500 contracts of the 15 calls at 51.65. Then he sold 500 contracts at the 10 calls of 56.25. So again, he bought 500 calls at the 15 strike, then sold 500 calls at a 10 strike. That total call spread credit that he collected in doing this box spread was on that particular side, the call spread side was $4.60. So keep that in mind as we kind of go through this. Then on the put side, he just did the inverse, obviously same strikes, but just in the inverse, he bought 500 of the 10 strike puts for 288. And then he sold 500 of the 15 strike puts for $4.03. Now on the put side, this total credit that he collected then was $1.15. If you add up the credits from each of the respective spread sides, the call spread side and the put spread side of 460 and 115, you get a total credit for the whole box spread that he sold. Remember, he sold this box spread. He did not buy the spread. So he sold this box spread and collected money initially. He took in a total credit of $5.75. Now, if you go back to the beginning of this podcast, you will remember that the box spread is going to go towards the spread value. So in this case, the spread is $5, the difference between the 15 strike and the 10 strike on either side. That means that this spread will go down in value to $5 by expiration. And I think these were contracts that were many, many months and maybe even a couple years out at end time. So these contracts, yeah, I think they were even a couple years out, maybe two years out or so. So by the time it reaches expiration, it will go down in value from a net credit right now where he sold them a 575, it will go down in value to $5. So here's a theory, right? If you have... 500 contracts that you could make $75 on, by the time you reach expiration, if everything works out well, you know assignment risk, et cetera, right? You have 500 contracts that you can make $75 on that gives you a risk-free profit of $37,500. Now I say risk-free in air fingers quotes because clearly it was not risk-free. You're carrying a lot of risk for two years, you have assignment risk, and that's what ultimately this all kind of fell into, right, is is a lot of this risk started to creep up very, very quickly. Where I think this is really fascinating is that at the time, Robinhood allowed these. And whether they knew the risk or just weren't even aware of how big the risk could get in a particular account, this guy's account when he started with Robinhood was only $5,000. So you're talking about an account that has $5,000 of real money in it putting on this massive position that conceivably should be carrying two hundred dollars to $300,000 worth of margin to cover this position. 
and they allowed it to go through. And again, if everything worked out and it was never a sign and it went all the way to expiration in two years, then he would have made a massive gain on it. But what started to happen was we started to get some of this assignment risk start to creep in. And this is where I think it gets interesting because if you take your time with this and you start to really think about how assignment risk can really hurt your position, I want to kind of walk through this because it's really, that one, it just is a great little case study and just kind of figuring out and calculating out these things because I think a lot of people just their eyes glaze over when they start to do this. But if you take your time and actually walk through it and and go through the steps very, very slow and really think about the spreads and the premium and things like that, you can understand the risks a lot better. You know, this is one thing that I like doing when we get assigned positions is walking through a video that kind of walks through, okay, what was the premium we collected? When did we have to buy or sell stock, et cetera, et cetera. So that to me is, I think, a really important aspect of this. So if you remember on the call spread side, he had sold that call spread side. And I think you have to take it side by side. He had sold the call spread for $4.60, even though the width of the call spread was $5. So remember, he bought 500 of the 15 strike calls and he sold 500 of the 10 strike calls. Now, in this example, what would happen theoretically? I guess not even theoretically because it did happen. What would happen if you had someone that assigned your short call options? So you have these short call options. Maybe they're in the money. Maybe they're slightly at the money. And somebody decides that they're going to come in and they're going to assign these contracts. Well, if they assign your short call options, it's forcing you to sell stock at the strike price because you sold those call options. But if you don't have any underlying stock, what do you do in that case? And this is, I think, where really like the risks start to magnify with box spreads for assignment risk. Because if you get assigned on one of these legs, which is in the money, of course, then you have to either come up with the capital to hold the position or you have to start liquidating other portions of your box spread in order to cover the risk. So if you got assigned on your short call option at 10, what you'd have to do because you don't have the capital to cover it is you'd immediately have to go out and exercise your 15 strike call options to get the underlying to clear the trade. And this is where it starts to get really, really bad if you're doing this box spread and you don't have, again, all this capital to handle the position. Because think about logically what you're doing here. You got a sign on your short 10 strike call options, which means your short stock at 10. If you have to cover that position because you don't have the stock to cover it and you have to exercise a 15 strike call, which allows you the right to buy stock at 15, you've effectively bought stock at 15 when you are already short stock at 10 just in order to clear the trade, which creates a $5 loss every single time. So you exercise your 15 strike calls, you buy stock at 15 to get the shares that you need to then deliver the short stock at the 10 strike. So every single time on the call side, you are losing $5 just through the process of assignment and exercise. But now take a step back and remember, you sold this spread for a credit. You sold the call spread for a credit of $4.60. So the loss is $5 minus the spread credit that you sold, which is $4.60, which means that no matter what happens still, you still lose $0.40 or $40 per contract spread that you have to deal with. So you magnify this risk on the call side. And if you lose $40 per spread times 500 spreads that you traded, that's a $20,000 loss 
any time that you have to go through this and it starts to accumulate very quickly. Right away, you can see that that $20,000 loss that you could have just on the assignment risk before we get to expiration two years from now is more than the actual account value. So this is why Robinhood doesn't allow these anymore. <laughs> Clearly, they don't allow these. That's why many brokers have really high margin requirements for them on purpose because the assignment risk and having to deal with this is a real, real risk. Now, that was just the call side, okay? Let's take one step over and start to look at the put side. Now, remember from earlier, he had sold a put spread for $1.15. You're probably already knowing where I'm going to go with this, but I'm going to walk through the math with you because I think it's important, but it's obviously going to be much worse on the put spread side. Now, remember, this was also done on UVXY. So this thing tends to, in most environments, actually be dragged lower through the pricing structure, right? So now we have additional risk in the underlying product, which is dragged lower through its just the way that it's structured and priced. That coupled with the fact that most of our risk in this position is to the downside on the put spread side because we didn't cover it with enough premium. And you can see how quickly this thing can kind of cascade and catapult into a, a major, major position. So on the put spread side, he sold the put spreads for $1.15. Now he bought the 10 strike puts and he sold the 15 strike puts. Now again, walk through this whole scenario with assignment. If you were assigned on the 15 strike puts that you sold, that means you would have to buy stock at 15. And if you bought stock at 15 or were forced to buy stock at 15, but you had no underlying shares, no contracts, no capital to kind of cover that position, what do you do in that case? Well, you do the natural thing that you would do in a spread. You go out and you exercise automatically your 10 strike puts that you're long. But if I buy stock at 15 and I exercise the 10 strike puts to sell stock at 10, again, I create a scenario in which I lose $5 in that spread every single time. Now, once we factor in the credit, right, that we had collected in selling that put spread of $1.15, that means that the net loss that I have on the position after I factor in the $1.15 credit from selling the spread is still $3.85. So clearly, this is where the spread starts to get a massive amount of risk is on the put spread side. Every time that you have to deal with an assignment, you potentially put yourself in a position where you could lose $3.85 for every single one of those contracts. Now, again, you extrapolate this out, $3.85 times 500 spreads. You're looking at basically risk of $192,500 just on the put spread side. So this is where if you don't understand the dynamics of a box spread, and hopefully we've gone through it well enough here in this podcast that now getting through this, you do understand it. The assignment risk early in the expiration process when you don't have the capital to cover it is very, very aggressive. And even if you did have the capital to cover it, in many cases that might dwarf the benefits of doing the box spread. In this case, I think he got a really, really good credit. So of course, if he had the capital to cover it or if nothing happened with assignment risk, he could have made that money at the end of the two-year cycle, but what's the likelihood that that happens, especially trading a product like UVXY, which is going to be pulled down as volatility goes up and down, and it's going to go through assignments over the course of two years. So it's a really interesting case study, hopefully kind of walking through the dynamics of this and the pricing. Again, makes you just think a little bit more about positions and hopefully, and I really hope that this happens, that it, it makes you understand that a lot of this is just simply math in going through it, just calculating out contracts, times risk, times spread, right? Thinking about it logically, like what happens if 
I get assigned? What would I do? How would I manage the position? You know, what's the premium that I collected between the differential and the strikes, right? And how does that all work? Because if you think about it logically, and I think a lot of people on the Reddit forum were doing this initially, they were going through and they're like, please don't make this trade. Like it's not going to work out well. I think what ultimately ended up happening, as far as I can tell, and as far as people know, is that Robin had basically shut it down and, and turned it over pretty quickly. So some of the assignments started happening, started coming through, the losses started occurring, and they just shut down the whole thing. And I think they did it at a point in which he was down $57,000. As far as I know, they haven't gone after him with it. This to me is a risk that the broker took. I don't think they should have let this trade go through clearly. And this is one of the ways that brokers actually lose money in this environment is by letting trades go through like this, that I have more loss than the actual client's account. You know, this is funny because if you think about it, not to dovetail too much away from box spreads, but this same thing happened with interactive brokers, at least as far as And I think that this is the only one that's actually said something right now publicly. I think other brokers are probably in the same case. But when crude oil last month, at the time we're recording this podcast, last month crude oil finished and settled negative for the first time ever. And so those crude oil futures settling negative means that people were just willing to pay to get rid of crude oil at that point, which is kind of fascinating in and of itself. But because of that, and because the brokers have never seen that environment before, interactive brokers actually went through a situation where they had a massive loss as a result of this that they had to eat up. I think it was an $88 million hit from those crude oil contracts because people were losing more than their account. I mean, if you buy a futures contract and you think the futures contract just goes to zero, we've now all learned that actually futures contracts can go much further below zero. And maybe negative 30, 40 is not the end. Maybe it goes even lower at some point in the future if there's so much supply and no demand, right? But these are the types of risks that brokers actually have to deal with and they actually have to take a bath on sometimes, which is kind of scary, but also kind of at the same time, it's insightful to see that sometimes they don't even know the risk and we're presented with new market environments all the time. And it's just really important to keep track of what you're doing with your trades and and how your trades are setting up and what the real risks are and what the outlets would be if you go through an assignment or go through expiration in one of the contracts, right? Just understanding a lot of it from a much more higher level, I think is really important. So anyways, hopefully this really helped out today going through all the box spread stuff. We'll have a list of all this stuff in the show notes over at optionalpha.com slash show 178. Again, that's just the number 178, optionalpha.com slash show 178. And now our favorite part of the show, Trader Q&A, where we ask a question from one of our current members about options trading. Got a question you'd like to ask Kirk to answer live on the air? Just head on over to optionalpha.com forward slash ask and hit the record button to leave a message. That's optionalpha.com forward slash ask. And now here's today's question. Hey, Kirk, this is Greg Baskin. Hey, um, I've been wondering for some time about when you have a ETF based on an index like SPY versus the SPX. The SPX I know or I understand is a accumulation of everything that's involved in the S&P 500 and that the uh, the price at any given moment is nothing but a result of all of that. SPY, though, I wonder, is that the exact same? Does that work in the exact same way or is it indeed, is the price varied by the supply and demand upon the SPY itself? as a separate issue. Appreciate it. Hey, Greg, man. Thank you so much for submitting your question and for just being very engaging in the community. I know you help out a lot and I really appreciate it. So to answer your question pretty quickly, so SPX is an index which tracks all of the underlying components. 
So the index and then SPY is an ETF that's actually tradable. And so because SPY, which is still based on the same components and influenced by the same underlyings, since SPY is actually a tradable ETF, it does vary a little bit in price because its price is more set by buyers and sellers of the ETF versus just the actual SPX tracking index. So there is a little bit of variance in there. It's not that great though. It's usually the pricing differential is usually 10 times less for SPY than SPX. And it usually sticks to that pretty closely. So I don't think you'll find a lot of variety in there, but that is what the difference is between those two different products. So thank you again so much for submitting your question and hopefully it helps out. As always, if you guys are listening to this right now and you want to get your question answered here on the podcast, simply head on over to optional.com slash ask and click the big red button in the middle of the screen and leave me a private voicemail, just like Greg just did. There's no software to download or install. It's incredibly easy and it comes right to me. And then I get a queued up for the next episode that we have. So let's get in the closing bell segment today and let's talk about a new trade that we're making in XLB. Now, the closing bell. Find out which stocks we're looking at right now, trades we're making, and hear our game plan moving forward. All right, so new trade we're making today is in the ticker symbol XLB, and this is the Spiders Materials ETF. And I like this one because, you know, we need some bearish exposure in our portfolio right now. So at the time we're recording this, it is early May, and we want some bearish exposure in our portfolio. The market's had one heck of a rally off of the bottom. In many respects, it was expected. I thought that the markets would have a bounce. I said so. I think a lot of people did. And so now it's going to be this messy middle of where do things go from here? And I think it's gone a little bit too far too fast, at least for the time being. And so I want to sell a credit spread above the market on the call side. So a bearish call spread, try and take advantage of either the market going down, going sideways, or at least not going up to our strike prices. So to me, this is just one of the spreads that we're starting to do where we're kind of feathering in some of these bearish positions, still trading a lot of neutral strategies. We don't know where things are going to go, obviously. So my expectation of where things are means nothing, but we don't know where markets are going to go. But I want to get some of these positions on so that if the market does go down, we have something to take off pretty quickly and something to profit with. So in this case with XLB, I'm selling the June 55 calls and then buying the June 60 calls for $1.05 credit. That gives our blended break even around $56 on XLB. And so these are around a 70% probability of success for June based on current pricing and where things are right now. This is a good trade for me. We'll do it small with three contracts, just try to ladder into a couple of these positions. So if XLB continues to move up, then we'll get into another set of contracts, maybe at higher strikes. What I do like about these, and I think I've mentioned them before, is that when you sell these bear spreads, especially in this environment, which I think we're in a cyclical bear market, if you sell these and then the market comes back up, you could quickly convert that into an iron condor, an iron butterfly, and reduce risk. And so it gives you a lot of flexibility, a lot of options, pun intended, a lot of options in what you can do with this position versus just outright selling stock, for example, which I think is a terrible way to go about it. So I like this position. You do what you want with it, obviously, but I like the 55-60 bear spread on the call side for a $1.05 credit for June expiration. Thanks for listening to the Option Alpha podcast. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a rating or comment. Plus, you can get everything. Free email updates for future shows, transcripts, video tutorials, case studies, and more. Just visit our website at optionalpha.com.
All right, so that's a wrap for this week's podcast episode here at Option Alpha. But before you go, let's keep the conversation going. As always, please connect with us on your favorite social media platform. Let us know what questions you have, ideas that came through, things that you want us to talk about in another upcoming show. We are always open to hearing feedback and questions and insights. We truly love it. So connect with us pretty much everywhere at Option Alpha. Also want to give you guys a sneak peek as to what's coming up next week. So next week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about leaps. So leap contracts are another big topic that we really haven't given enough effort and attention to. And so we're going to dedicate an entire episode on leap contracts, which are going to be really interesting given where we're at in the market cycle right now. As always, if you guys have any other questions around leaps, please get those into us ASAP so we can get those added to the next show. As always, truly hope you guys enjoyed today's show and got at least one thing out of it that you can apply right now to help you consistently play smarter, more profitable trades. And until next time, happy trading.